Listener Production. Hello, welcome to today's briefing. It's Wednesday the 30th of June and in our briefing today, Singapore's bold plan to live with COVID. It's all built in with vaccinations into a scheme that how you can sort of live with it normally and and, and deal with maybe a tiny outbreak here or there. Singapore's outlined a new strategy to get life back to normal and treat COVID like the flu. It's what a lot of people want to hear here, but could it work in Australia? That will be our briefing in just a moment. First, Katrina Blouse is here with today's news. Hello, Tom. Well, 12 million Australians are now in lockdown after 4 million of us Queenslanders went into a three-day lockdown last night at 6pm. I know this is going to be tough for a lot of families. Um, I apologise for that, but I don't want to see people end up in our hospital on ventilators. That's Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk announcing the lockdown yesterday. These restrictions were brought in after it was revealed a 19-year-old casual hospital worker who's a receptionist outside a COVID ward, had caught the Delta variant of the virus and had been infectious for up to 10 days while travelling around Queensland with her family, and she wasn't vaccinated. Yeah, the Queensland Premier saying she's furious about that. An investigation is now underway. So 11 local government areas in southeast Queensland, including Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, Brisbane, joined Townsville, Palm Island and Magnetic Island. Many of those, Tom, have never been in lockdown before. So this is a first for them and they'll all go into lockdown until Friday night at least. Wow, it'd be really tough being stuck on Magnetic Island, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, super tough. <laughs> um, how are you feeling about it? Yeah, look, it's our third lockdown in Queensland this year. I feel like Queenslanders have really dodged a bullet so far. So we're pretty okay with it. The only thing is it's school holidays, Tom. So, oh. And it's going to be raining for the next three days. So I think a lot of parents will be climbing the walls by the end <laughs> of Friday night. Okay, so you Queenslanders are joining us here in Sydney as well as Darwin and Perth who are all in snap lockdowns. Um, the good news out of New South Wales from Gladys Berejiklian was that the numbers are looking like they're starting to flatten. I don't want to regret what I'm about to say, but um, we had anticipated potentially a surge in cases. So, yeah, we're at 19 new cases announced yesterday, hoping today will be something similar or less. Did you hear about Barnaby Joyce and the face mask fine? I don't think you could miss the memes that were going around <laughs> yesterday about, you know, dobbing normally as opposed to dobbing on Barnaby Joyce. <laughs> Very good. Doctors say they were surprised by the federal government's decision to allow all adults to get the AstraZeneca vaccine. This decision was a surprise to the AMA. It's a surprise to doctors. Yeah, so that's the president of the Australian Medical Association, Omar Korshid, who says the changes in advice are leaving people really, really confused. I mean, yesterday we had uh, the New South Wales Premier saying, look, it's up to people and their GPs. The Queensland Chief Health Officer says young people should still get Pfizer because that's the clinical advice. The Victorian Health Minister, Martin Foley, said this wasn't a decision from National Cabinet, so he wanted to distance himself from this as well. But a lot of young people are going, well, let's do it. They've been um, Mm. getting on the phones and calling their GP. I've been really surprised to hear how many people are saying, look, I'm really happy to get step up and get my vaccination, which means that people have been actually doing their research and having a look at the risk benefit. 
So that's uh, Dr Karen Price. She's the president of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners and she's speaking to the ABC there. And the college reported that phones were absolutely ringing off Mm. the hook at GP clinics yesterday after the PM opened those vaccinations by AstraZeneca to people under 40 for the first time. A lot of people wouldn't have probably been eligible until maybe next year for some of those vaccines. So you can see why there's a bit of a rush. Yeah, I've been struggling to um, get on the list for the Pfizer one. I've been going on the New South Wales health website and trying to register, can't get it. And I'm happy to go and get the AstraZeneca vaccine and leave the Pfizer jab for people who are worried about those tiny risks of getting TTS. Um, I want to join that the group of people at Wimbledon who was giving a standing <laughs> ovation to the female scientist who was involved in the AstraZeneca development. Isn't it great to see scientists getting standing ovations, finally getting that uh, rock star reception that so many of them deserve? Big banks, mining companies and other large private corporations will be enlisted to help roll out the vaccine. So this kind of makes sense. The vaccine rollout chief, Lieutenant General John Fruin, has told nine newspapers that the government plans to enlist these private companies and they'll work alongside GP clinics and vaccine hubs in providing vaccines, kind of like big companies already do with the flu jabs. Yeah, so they'll do that with the COVID jabs, roll it out at their workplaces. So that would be a great way to speed things up. Sports rorts, but worse. That's the accusation from Labor. I've described it as sports rorts on an industrial scale. That's uh, Labor's city spokesman Adam Giles speaking to the ABC there. So this comes after the Auditor-General has slammed the government's handling of a, it's a pretty big number here, $660 million fund set up to provide commuter car parks. Yeah, so this report from the Auditor-General's office found that the government's choice of where to fund these car parks was not based on merit and that 77% of the sites were in government seats and the rest were mostly in marginal seats, uh, not so much Labor seats. So if this is found to be true, it's it's pork barrelling on a, on a massive scale. Uh, the report found that more than twice as many projects were approved in Melbourne rather than Sydney, despite Infrastructure Australia finding that Sydney, in fact, had the nation's busiest roads. Yeah, so the reason this is being compared to the sports rort scandal is that that scandal also started with an Auditor-General's report with similar findings. Uh, this happened at the start of last year and led to the sacking of Bridget McKenzie, who was mm. the minister responsible. She happens to have been brought back into the ministry. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just recently. Yeah, yep. this week. But that, that scandal was over the spending of $100 million. This commuter car parks funding was six times more. So I wonder if this will lead to much pressure on the minister responsible for this one, which was Alan Touch. And riders in the Tour de France have staged a protest during stage four after a devastating series of crashes. I can't believe the footage Mm. I've been seeing this week, Tom, in the opening stages of the event. It just looks so dangerous. Yeah, it's been tragic, um, particularly after Caleb Ewan was taken out of the Tour de France at the end of stage three. He was sprinting for that last few hundred metres and hit the deck so hard. But there were loads of other crashes as well, just in stage three. And of course, that really famous crash in stage one with that woman holding the cardboard Mm. sign. So in last night's stage, the riders, just after the race started, they stopped in the middle of the road for a minute and protested the safety of the race. Have they ever done anything even remotely like this before? I'm not sure, Um, but they clearly wanted to take a stand and they want the race to be safer. And it's understandable why you see these guys um, riding along with these huge wounds, these gashes in their body after, you know, having to somehow get back on the bike following these massive crashes. 
the fact that spectators are allowed to stand with signs so close to where these riders are, are going past is unbelievable too. Yeah, well, the funny thing is at the start of the race, everyone was stoked to have the spectators back mm. because last year they rode without spectators and it wasn't the same vibe. But um, this year, the spectators have been a little too enthusiastic. <laughs> getting too close. All right, we'll catch you tomorrow, Katrina. Annika's jumping back in as we take a look at the Singapore solution. Hey, Annika here. Could there be a way out of this rolling snap lockdown situation that we find ourselves in in Australia? Maybe not focusing on zero cases. Yeah, well, Singapore stepped forward as a really interesting example on how to move on from this stage of the pandemic. Last week, they announced that they won't be focusing on those daily COVID infections. They'll focus on the outcomes, like how many people got sick or ended up in intensive care or intubated for oxygen. This is a similar way to the way they would, say, monitor the flu. The new policy statement also shows how they can move away from lockdowns, quarantine and travel restrictions and learn to live with COVID. Yeah, so is this something we could do in Australia? Singapore handled the first year of the virus very well, like we did here. But there is, of course, the key difference that they've fully vaccinated a third of their population, whereas we're at 5%. Chris Barrett is in Singapore. He's the Southeast Asia correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Chris, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Not long ago, Singapore was in lockdown and now there's been a decision to live with COVID. What changed? Well, I think a, a few things. This has been a, a challenging time, probably the last six or seven weeks in Singapore. They had, you know, what they what you might call a second wave, but not really a wave, um, a sort of wave that you might get at, uh, at Botany Bay or something like that rather than <laughs> Bondi Beach. But what it has done is it, it, it's come with, when, in a time when there has been already a significant amount of vaccinations. So they've been able to see the health impacts on people who've got the virus, a small number, who, who have been vaccinated. And so at that point, you can start looking at, well, how many hospitalisations have there been, how many people have required oxygen, and certainly how many how many deaths were, you know, in among that category, there was none. So it's allowed them to change tack. What they've done is they've continually sort of set themselves goals. They've thought on their feet. Most of it is tied to vaccinations and, and just how far they've got through that. They're hoping to have two-thirds with at least the one jab by the first week of August. So, you know, they're a fair way down the track, albeit with a, you know, reasonably small population of of five and a half million. So was it a strategic decision where they said once we get to a certain point, they're at a third fully vaccinated now that we'll start to ease all these measures? Or did they just get sick of the lockdown measures and also see that the hospitalisations and deaths were fairly low? They certainly didn't announce that they'd had a point at which they would make those changes in terms of how many people have been vaccinated. And let's be clear, this hasn't happened yet. We're still in a period of fairly strong restrictions. You can only gather in groups of two. Up until a week ago, there was no restaurants, bars or gyms open and hadn't been since since early May because of that small surge in cases that I talked about. So there's still some pretty uh, tough restrictions And of course, travel, I mean, there was among the toughest quarantine rules in the world up until last week. It was it was a three week quarantine period returning to Singapore from just about anywhere, not not from Australia, which is where they've been letting people in just with a test for for quite some time now. But this hasn't actually happened yet. This is I suppose some of it, you know, relates to Singapore being a its desire to be be connected as a, as a regional business hub and its reputation, I suppose, 
relying on that and, and the kind of people who live here who really value that uh, ability to you know not have their, their, their movement tied down um, too much. I find whenever we bring this up here, people assume it's either a sort of let it rip and everybody gets it approach or it's aiming for zero, which is effectively what Australia is doing. But a year into the virus, we do have measures. We have contact tracing. We know how to also treat it when people are in hospital. How important are those tools to allowing you out of it, you know, contact tracing and um, checking in and wearing of masks to be able to still live with it. We're not talking about going back to an old life, are we? Well, they're not in Singapore, no. They've got all those things you mentioned in spades, you know, like so there's, you're wearing a mask everywhere aside from your house, basically wherever you go. The, you know, the QR codes, it's really forensic. The testing is really forensic as well. And they've really expanded a lot of this stuff since they had the little wave a month or so ago. So, I mean, I think it's all tied to that. It's all built in with vaccinations into a scheme that how you, how you can sort of live with it normally and, and, and deal with maybe a tiny outbreak here or there. But knowing that if you've been vaccinated and with the American vaccines, which according to the studies should give you pretty good coverage, I suppose they have a, a sense of confidence that there's not going to be a, a, a major outbreak with serious ramifications. I also wondered how much opposition there is to this. I feel whenever I write about this sort of approach in Australia, I'm seen as wanting grandmas to die and it's very sort of polarising. Is there much opposition in Singapore? And I also wondered how the government's changed their language. Part of the problem here is they needed so much buy-in from the public that they really spoke about it with such dire terms and they've had to start to unwind that, I guess. So who's opposed to it and how has the government's messaging changed? I don't think their messaging has changed a lot. I mean, I think it's been optimistic throughout. I mean, you've got to remember that they've been pushing, let's just, if you just turn to travel for a second rather than living with COVID domestically, they've been pushing for international travel bubbles since last year. I mean, they, they were on the brink of launching one with Hong Kong in November the day before, Hong Kong had a had quite a big COVID problem and it got called off again in May. They were going to launch it again, and this time it was Singapore's COVID issue that was the reason it was called off. So they've been putting the building blocks in place to take that next step, and they've been talking about that. I interviewed the head of the Singapore Tourism Board a couple of months back and asked him, obviously, about a potential travel bubble with Australia and, and he was quite clear that that's what they want to do, that they just need a dance partner. That's the terminology that, that they were using. So they've been, I guess, to their people making those sounds about them trying to take the next step and move beyond COVID or at least move to a period where they can live something of, an, of what the past life was with COVID for some time now. It's important messaging because it's not necessarily, and it's not at all, I don't think, hollow. In terms of the volume of their home testing kits that they're rolling out and breathalysers, plans to test outside major events when they launch them again. I mean, they're a long way down the track towards actually realising some of this stuff. And I think that's important when you come out with a statement like they did last week. Has this changed your opinion on Australia? You're looking in from an outside view now. We say we're doing aggressive suppression, not elimination, but the aim is still for zero cases a day. Do you see it all at possible for Australia to be able to wriggle out of that and, and get to a stage where Singapore is, where they're not going to focus on the daily count so much, but the impact of the virus overall? 
I would say no. I mean, uh, that, I mean, there certainly doesn't seem to be intention to do that, does there? Until they're in a position where they're uh, comfortable with the amount of vaccinations they've had, and I mean, it's still being reported over here by the health authorities in terms of cases per day at the moment, because they're at about fifty percent of people with one shot, thirty-five percent fully vaccinated. So they're not there yet, and Australia's nowhere near there. So you would have to hope that the Australian government and state governments can move towards that kind of mindset when their vaccination process is, is further along the line as well. But Singapore's certainly been in a suppression mode as, as, as well in terms of the way they've been operating in the last few months. I mean, they got up to cases of you know 30 or 40 a day in early May, and that was the reason they clamped down completely. So I don't think it's been a whole lot different in, the, in that sense yet. I mean, where, where it's been different is they've been willing to, I guess, take some more calculated risks uh, in terms of travel with, with low-risk countries like Australia something obviously that Australia hasn't been willing to do. But in terms of domestic, the way they've dealt with the, the, the virus so domestically, I don't think they've dealt with it completely differently yet. It's just that they've, I guess, shown an intention to start changing that pretty quickly. Chris, how do you think this will affect the Singapore-Australia travel bubble? Which bubble? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the idea look, of a bubble? Look, I don't think it'll really affect it at all because here's the thing. I mean, Singapore's wanted to start this bubble for a long time. Scott Morrison was here a couple of weeks ago for a flying visit and, look, it was mentioned in the meeting, but I think Prime Minister Lee here knew that Australia wasn't anywhere near ready for it. I was interested in some of the reporting around that, that, oh, the bubble's on, you know, they, they decided to agree to set up mutual vaccine recognition system and the other infrastructure for it. That apparently hasn't even really started yet. I, I noticed the Singapore Airlines chief gave a couple of interviews suggesting that. All it does is further demonstrate Singapore's ambitions on that front. It's not going to be about what Singapore wants. It's going to be when Australia wants it. And I still think that um, that's going to rely on what, you know, when Australia is ready uh, in terms of its vaccine levels. It's also more a political decision in that sense with, uh, with an election on the horizon next year as well. So bottom line is I don't think it'll necessarily change it. Australia knows that Singapore is a fair way down the track with vaccinations. Australia knows that Singapore wants to create a travel bubble. Um, it's up to them to agree to it. That was Chris Barrett. He's in Singapore. He's a South East Asia correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Annika, this Singapore solution seems like a very sensible way out of this stage of the pandemic, but I'd have to say we're nowhere near at their vaccination level and they haven't even done this yet. It's still essentially an idea. Yeah, I think it doesn't mean we can't get there. I ask a lot of politicians and chief health officers about this because, you know, when you look at it, and there's a lot of problematic things if you compare the flu to COVID, but in 2017, in this country, we had 1,200 deaths because of the flu. Now, we've had 910 people die due to COVID. So we didn't announce those flu deaths every day and we didn't sort of have this sort of terrifying language around it. And I think to weave our way out of that is going to be really difficult. We've really put a lot of fear into people. And it is a scary thing and a lot of people do get really unwell. But at some point, you know, even these vaccines, they're not 100% efficient. We're going to have to accept that it'll always be there in some ways. Now, whenever we ask anybody about this and say, well, what percentage of Australians would need to be vaccinated? And I asked this question just yesterday. We're told the science isn't settled. We can't come up with this yet. And we're really a long way from that, which, as you say, we've got such low vaccination rates. Only 5% of people have had 
both shots. So we are a long way from it. But I think it would almost work as an incentive if we knew, don't you think? If we knew that if 70 or 80% of people had both of the jabs and we got some freedoms back, people might be more keen to go and get it. Yeah, and that's called leadership. Leadership is about taking a position and giving people something to Mm. aim for. And that's what I think is probably lacking a little bit at this point of our management of the pandemic. Absolutely. It's going to take a strong leader to go out there and say, you know what, we're going to have to have a frank conversation about this. Some people will die, but we're going to do our best to live with it. Tomorrow on The Briefing, have you ever wanted to go back in time and use the old Nokia 5110? (laughs) Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're talking about going back to dumb phones. Listener.